Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. So I came across this book that's called, I Know That I'm Wasting My Life, But I'm Unsure How to Stop. Uh, and it perfectly explains how I deal with having too much free time. I don't know if you can relate to this at all, but whenever I have too much free time, I waste it so badly. I just do everything that I know that I should not be doing. Uh, if I have a really tight packed schedule, I'm much more productive than the other times where I just kind of feel like I'm floating along. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt like life was a little bit meaningless, which is how I feel in those moments. But, you know, I, I'm sure that there's some of us here who, who maybe you're in college and it's summer break and you've been, uh, you didn't get the internship or the job that you were hoping for. You're in between classes, you're at your parents' house and you just kind of feel like you're wasting your summer away. Maybe you've recently retired. You did all of the list that you had this grand big list. When I finally have time, I'm going to do these things. You did them all. And now you're like, what am I supposed to do? Maybe you're just in a job that is not requiring the most from you, not your favorite sort of job, and you're unsure of what to do next, so you just kind of feel like you're wasting your time day after day. Maybe you can relate to this, or maybe you don't feel like you're wasting your life at all, which kudos to you, sir or ma'am, well done. Uh, but I bet that you have struggled to find meaning in your life at one point or another. So let me tell you three stories about three different people. The first one is Ted. Ted, in his most honest moments, would say that he feels like his life has been a series of kind of mediocre steps. In his uh, polished view, he would say that he's played things safe. He has safe relationships. He has had a safe job. He, he made safe investments. Uh, his life is busy. But it's not a stressful busy. It's just a good keeping himself occupied busy. And the reason that he's couched his life in safety and in busyness is primarily a desire at self-preservation to avoid dealing with uh, the pain and the frustration and difficulties of life. He's used those things to cushion himself in how he lives. Maybe you can relate to Ted in some ways in that. Or there's Tammy. Tammy is completely different. You see, Tammy believes in nothing and she will tell you about it. She will tell you that institutions are always bad, that the church always has a problem, that governmental systems will always fail you. And don't get her started on Amazon or Apple. She knows that every single thing is not good and she'll tell you about it. Tammy has rejected all institutions. Uh, Tammy, in her most honest moments, would admit that her life feels like a bit of a failure. And honestly, she feels some regret for having lived that life. Because you see, satisfaction isn't an option for Tammy. She, she might have momentary happiness when she buys a Twix, her favorite candy bar, but that's not lasting. Nothing sticks from that. Tammy is frustrated with the realities of our world and of her life. And last story of, of a person named Arthur, and this one may sound the most familiar uh, for those of us who live in America. 
Uh, Arthur, or Artie, as he's known to his friends, he loves to party. He goes out at least four out of seven nights a week, uh, and he's not 22 anymore. He just does it because he loves to be around people. He loves to have fun. Uh, his motto is basically, I only get 70 good years of life, so I'm going to make sure that I live them up, that I do them as well as I possibly can. Uh, I'm going to enjoy them. Artie is all about pleasure about doing things in life that feel good. And again, in his most honest moments, Artie would acknowledge that this is not usually left him full. It hasn't filled him up, but he would quickly end the conversation and, and move away to go do something more fun than have that conversation uh, because that was a little bit of a downer. Uh, <laughs> in many ways, Artie is living the American way. For the next two weeks, I want to dig into the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our series called Wise Up. And the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a, a particularly in-depth look at the thoughts of a man who tried to live like Ted and Tammy and Artie. And at the end, he felt like none of it mattered. It was all meaningless. Uh, life was meaningless to this man. You know, wisdom literature is filled with questions, and questions are good because life is filled with questions. And questions are also good because they help us to dig in deeper, to learn more about who God is. And this, my hope for us is that this week and next, that we can dig in deep and ask God questions that really matter. Questions like, is my life meaningless? Can I actually have contentment in my life? Uh, is life on earth anything more than a broken cycle? And the reason I want us to ask these questions is because I feel like as we dig into these questions, we don't uh, find these to be the basis of doubt. Instead, we find these to be the basis of true and deep and lasting faith. We begin to walk down a path that leads us somewhere good to the presence of Jesus. And it's in his presence that we begin to find answers to these questions because he is the one who gives our life meaning. He is the one who gives us contentment. He is the one who heals the broken cycles of our life and brings hope and love and peace in the midst of our realities. Jesus is the one who has the answers. And so I want to ask him what his reality is for us. But first, before we jump into Ecclesiastes, I just want to pray. So I, I invite you right now just to pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for your presence that's here with us. And I pray for my friends right now that they will feel the, the reality of that presence, that they will know that you are there with them, that they will know that you are speaking to them, that they will know that you have good things for them today and that you want to meet with them and answer the questions of their heart. God, I pray for the ways that we've felt like we're living meaningless lives. Give us answers. Give us purpose. Give us hope. We love you, Jesus. We ask that your kingdom will come in our lives the same way it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, real quick, let's do a little bit of a background on Ecclesiastes before we jump into it. You know, the first question that most people have about a book of the Bible is, who wrote it? So, let me tell you about the story of a man named Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David. 
David was the most famous, most popular, most uh, uh, devastatingly good-looking. No, I don't know about that one. But he was, he was the most of everything as far as kings were in Israel. He was the one who united all of the tribes of Israel together in one kingdom. He destroyed their enemies. He brought peace to the land. Uh, he was well-liked, well-respected by almost everybody in Israel. That was Solomon's dad. Solomon's mom was a woman named Bathsheba. Now, Solomon's mom had been married to a man named Uriah before, and then David had seen Bathsheba and had wanted her, uh, and then they had an affair, to put it mildly, and as a result of that affair, uh, that she became pregnant. And so David's solution to this equation was to have Uriah killed in a way that only a king can. And so Solomon is the second son of David and Bathsheba. Now, to say that his family life was messy would be an understatement. This is a tricky situation that he was born into. And Solomon became king after David died. On the night when he was to become king, he had this dream where God came to him and asked him, Solomon, what is it that you want? I'll give you anything that you want. And he said to God, God, I want one thing. I want wisdom. And God was so pleased with that, that he gave him wisdom and he gave him much more. And Solomon was known throughout the world at that time as the wisest king. He was also known throughout the world at that time as the wealthiest king. Uh, he, was, he led Israel through a period of unprecedented peace. Uh, he was connected politically to all the other major powers in the known world. He married into lots of different royal families because he had some problems. You see, Solomon uh, was, uh, he loved beautiful women and he married lots of them. He had a th relationship with about a thousand women, which is just mind-blowing. He had everything that he set his eyes to. And so he became complicated. His appetite was huge, his character was weak, and his relationship with God became poorer and poorer as time went on. Solomon was known as a man who tried everything, who had access to everything and was still left unsatisfied. And so even though he had a deep understanding of God and who God was, that understanding never made its way down to his heart and never affected the way that he lived his life. And so he struggled because of that. Solomon is assumed to be the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we start to read it, I think it's going to make sense why people think that he's the author of this book. A few other things to keep in mind about this book. It is written in a first-person narrative. The teacher is the one who's writing about his experiences, his questions, his searching. Uh, he tells us all about it. And it's obviously written by somebody who is in royalty. The teacher talks about having access to everything and anything that he wanted. During the time when it was written, a king had everything and he had permission to do whatever he wanted and nobody questioned him, otherwise they would die. Uh, so if he makes a claim, it's really hard to push back and to say that he's wrong because a king had experiences that a lesser man would never have access to. And so there's this, this 
this journaling that's going on by somebody who has access to everything and anything that he could ever want. He's called the teacher is what he calls himself. And it is massively pessimistic. It is definitely the most pessimistic book in the entire Bible. Uh, And if you don't believe me, just wait till we get to the second verse in this book and you will start to understand. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Some people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. And in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Jean-Paul Sartre, the ultimate pessimist, once wrote that man is a useless passion. It is meaningless that we live and it is meaningless that we die. You know, if you put Sartre and Solomon in a room, the rest of us would probably want to leave. Uh, But they would see eye to eye on many, many things. So I want to talk about this word meaningless that we have. Uh, I think it's important for us to kind of understand what the teacher means by this word. It's this Hebrew word, hevel, which means vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness, futile, untrustworthy, a breath a vapor, or a quickly disappearing cloud. And it's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is definitely the theme, the motto of this entire book. So there's kind of two ways that you could look at this word, that you could translate it. And so I want to look at both real quick and then tell you what my thoughts are. So one angle would be to go the kind of the vanity route, the vain route. Um, When we use that word, we're usually describing somebody who looks in the mirror too much, you know, cares a little too much about how they look, uh, got to check themselves out, always uh, thinks a little bit more of themselves. Somebody who Carly Simon would have sang, son of a gun, you walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf was apricot. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself gavotte. And all the girls dreamed they'd be your partner. And you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. So the teacher could want us to know that life is vain, meaningless, extremely pointless, like an apricot scarf. A vain, futile thing. And... Okay, I think in some ways that is what the teacher wants us to know. But I think that's limiting the idea of Hevel a little bit too much. 
The fact that it's also translated as breath and vapor imply this other idea. Because both breaths and vapors, while they're fleeting, while they're quickly gone, they do have substance. They are there. If we were to flash freeze my breath right now, you would be able to see it. If we were to flash freeze vapor gas in the air, you would be able to see it. They might feel pointless and fleeting, but they do actually have some substance. So Hevel is best understood as something that will end quickly and will not return. Why does this matter? Well, I think it's important as we read the Bible to understand what the authors actually meant, uh, not just what we interpret it as meaning. And so I think that it's important from, from that standpoint. But also, it helps us to understand the teacher, because this is a man who has tried everything and found it all inconsequential, all of it nothing more than a breath here and then gone. And he's had access to almost anything he wanted. In chapter 2, he gives us this huge list of things that he has created, uh, things like, uh, or things that he's done as well. You know, for instance, it tells us that he got drunk a lot of times. And at the end of the day, he didn't find it to actually have that much meaning. Uh, it says that he built huge homes and vineyards and, and he had lots of animals and he had more money than anyone else he knew and that, that he had beautiful women and that he had great music. And, and verse 10, it even says that he tried this really novel thing, that he got a job and he tried working with his hands and that he found that to be really good. But still, all of it was fleeting at the end of the day. Verse 11 of chapter 2, as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was also meaningless like chasing the wind. There was really nothing worthwhile anywhere. He had it all and it was meaningless. So even though the teacher is not a religious role model, don't live your life like him. He was a Jewish man in his time period, which meant that he had a solid understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, which included Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account of God, wherein God creates a list of things that he has made. And at the end of it, he looks at it and he says to it all that it is good. The teacher here creates a list, a life filled with things that he's made. And at the end, he looked at it all and he said it was meaningless. And God creates a list of things that he has made. And he looks at it all and he says that it is good. So what's the difference between the good life that God has created and the meaningless one that the teacher has created? Well, two things stick out to me from this section. First, in verse 8, the teacher says, Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. You see, the teacher had a contentment problem. He never had enough. And honestly, I think that this is a struggle for many people in America today. I think we're often guilty of this. We have as much as we possibly could ever want, by and large. Most of us do. We have access to so many things, and yet we're not really content with it. Our house is too small. Not enough bathrooms, bedrooms, space for me to do whatever it is. 
Our cars are too old. They're not new enough. Our technology is too slow, too small, too clunky, whatever it is. Uh, you know, we are often a discontent, dissatisfied, grumpy, complaining uh, group of people. And at the end of the day, we have trained ourselves to end up with no joy and a mild case of depression. Friends, we've created a meaningless life. We have fallen into the same trap that the teacher did. You know, this past week, my mom was in town, and so we did some stuff around the state uh, to just kind of tour her around a little bit. And we went to Tanglewood for a free concert on Monday, which was great, right? It's free, got classical music, it's fun. Uh, it was a beautiful day. It was sunny, it was a little breezy. We had a picnic. Afterwards, when we left, uh, we stopped at Chick-fil-A, had dinner, everyone was in a good mood. It was a great day, right? Except that the... On the drive there, the traffic was terrible, like really, really bad on 90. And then we got there and we, we picked a spot that had too much sun and not enough shade. It was just a little bit too much. And then the music selection for this free concert was not what I would have chosen. Uh, it was a little bit quirky. And then when we got to Chick-fil-A, they, they messed up one item uh, of our order. And... It was still edible, but it was frustrating. So it was a terrible day, right? What's the difference between the good day that God gave us and the terrible day that I just created? Contentment is the difference. The teacher learns, though, and I hope that we can begin to learn. If you look at it, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7, he says, All people spend their life scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. So are wise people really better off than fools? Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Friends, contentment matters. Being content is not just being blind to the realities of what is going on in your world. It's not just about accepting bad situations. It's looking at what God has given us. It's finding joy in that, gratitude in that, thankfulness in that, for God's goodness. It's being honest about what it is that we need and going to God because we trust that he is good and that he's going to supply what it is that we need, that he's going to give us what we need. Contentment has no space for jealousy or greed. If we live our lives based on comparisons and a continual lust for more, we will live meaningless lives. Strive to find contentment, friends. And if you're young, you're at a perfect spot. Do it when you're 18. Be content with life when you're 18. Don't wait till you're 45. Do it when you're 25 and you know you feel like you don't make enough money. Find contentment then, not when you're 60. Do it early in life. What is the difference between the good life that God creates and the meaningless one that the teacher created? Well, it comes down to this. Contentment and then freedom versus frustration. 
So in Romans 8, 18 through 21, Paul writes this. Listen to this for a second. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So in verse 20, in Romans 8, it says that creation was subjected to frustration. Here's how this ties in with what we're talking about. The Greek word for frustration that Paul uses here would have been the same word that they would use to translate the word hevel in Ecclesiastes. So when Paul, who's a voracious reader of the Old Testament, wrote this, he was thinking of Ecclesiastes. He used this word on purpose. He was shooting back and he was saying, uh, creation was subjected to meaninglessness, to, to, to life as a breath, as a vapor, on purpose. Why? Why was it subjected? Well, in verse 21, he says, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and by brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says that our dealings with the meaninglessness, the hevel, the fleetingness of life are at least in part so that we can know the freedom that God wants to bring us so that we can understand the difference between freedom and frustration. Because through Jesus, we have hope. We don't have to live a completely blind faith in the goodness of God. We are able to see the goodness of God, uh, of God's plan, that the death and life, the resurrection of Jesus, that our lives are being filled and lived in light of Jesus's uh, love and sacrifice for us. And in that place that we can find meaning, you're not going to find meaning in anything other than Jesus. The teacher proved this. There is nothing. Nothing else out there that is going to supply what it is that you're searching for. You're not going to find it in your job. You're not going to find it in your income. You're not going to find it in whatever, uh, you know, thing that you love to do or you love to eat or you love to drink. You're not going to find it in another person. You're not going to find it in a material object. You're only going to find it in Jesus. You could try and live your life like Ted or Tammy or Artie. If you're incredibly wealthy, you can even try and live it like Solomon. You can live your life like I did on Monday and be momentarily dissatisfied by something that's good. You can lack contentment and hope and feel life like, like life is an exercise in meaninglessness. All things vain and empty and quickly disappearing. Frustration with life is the path that many people take. You can take that path. But God in his goodness, has given us another way. And here's the promise for us today, friends. You and I, we can be liberated from our bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory as children of God. Living a wise life filled with contentment and freedom that our good Father wants to give us. That is what is being held out before us. That is what wisdom looks like. The way of wisdom is the way of acknowledging this 
and asking God to come and to change us. And so if you're willing right now to to open up your heart, open up your mind and to say, Jesus, I want to know if I'm living my life in a way that is filled with discontent, dissatisfaction, that is filled with meaninglessness, that's filled with frustration. And instead, I want to accept contentment. I want to accept freedom. I want to accept your goodness in my life. If you're willing to pray for this, I invite you just to open up your hands and to pray with me right now. Jesus, I thank you that you came to bring life, a meaningful, uh, deep, uh, power-filled, love-filled, joy-filled, contentment-filled life. I thank you that you are good and that you supply the things that we need, that you give us what we need, that we don't have to uh, be constantly wondering if we're going to have things that are as good as our neighbor or our coworker, but we can find contentment in the places that we're at. And I pray, Jesus, right now that you will come and speak to our hearts. Help us to recognize the ways that we've been grabbing for things that we shouldn't be, the ways that we've been trying uh, to find meaning outside of you. Jesus, I pray for each one who's with me right now, for them to be filled with your spirit, to be filled with your awareness, and to hear from you right now. Breathe life into us, meaningful, deep life. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.